with that in mind, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts is uh, the fifth book in the New Testament. It comes after four accounts of Jesus' life, what we call the Gospels. And it is the history of the early church. Uh, It's the history of early Christianity as it grew up. Uh, And we're actually studying this book under the title of Following Jesus into the World. Uh, Because that was the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, was to make him known to the end of the earth. And so we're we're seeing how they did it, uh, so that we might learn how we can join in the same. Uh, So far, we've seen Jesus' mission move from Jerusalem uh, upward into what we know now as modern-day Turkey, the country we prayed for today. Uh, And in the last couple of weeks, uh, we saw... A man named Paul and Barnabas make a trip around that region, and they've come back to their home church in Antioch, which is in southern Turkey, almost in Syria. Uh, And that is, uh, they had a successful trip telling other people the good news of Jesus. Uh, And now we'll pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia And Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. So just to kind of give you a visual real quick, Antioch is up here, close to the Mediterranean Sea. Paul and Barnabas are there. That's their sending church. They travel down the coast through the regions of Phoenicia and Samaria uh, down to Jerusalem. And as they're going, they're telling people about uh, what God has done. Verse 4, when they come to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. 
After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write, them, write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. Uh, we could say that uh, Acts 15 is uh, the story of the most important meeting you've never heard of. When you think about all of the famous scenes from the Bible, uh, th- scenes that have even made it into popular culture, things like David and Goliath, Noah and the flood, Jesus, his birth, crucifixion, resurrection, right? When you think about all of the famous, important scenes in the Bible that everybody seems to know, you don't really think about the Jerusalem Council. That's what this is called, or what's we, what we call it, the Jerusalem Council, right? When, you're, right when, uh, when people are gathering around to paint murals on church walls or nursery walls, like nobody's raising their hand and saying, hey, I'd like to paint uh, the Jerusalem Council, right? It's just not one that typically comes to mind when you think of the story of the Bible, And yet, this moment in the Bible is critically important. I might even be so inclined to say that it's the most important moment in the book of Acts, though that would be hard to prove. Uh, And the reason that it's so important is because you have all of these representatives from various churches who have gathered to answer a critical question. The most important question, in my view, And that question is, how is a person accepted by God? Or to use the language of the passage, what must I do to be saved? How is a person saved? How is a person accepted by God? That's the the question before the council. uh, And and there are two things that are at stake here. uh, And we're going to look at these two things. One is the purity of. Of the gospel. And then the second is the unity 
of the church, the purity of the gospel and the unity of the church. So let's, let's talk about the purity of the gospel. When we say that word gospel, it means good news. What we're talking about is the church's message. The good news is the church's message. And it is where this, this message is where the church stands or falls. It's where we live and die. It's, the only, it's really the only message we have. It is what, it is what in, a, in a marketing or a sales sense, it is what makes us unique in the market. Right? Uh, when you think about going out to eat or going shopping, uh, you are usually driven by uh, something unique. Right? If you choose to shop at Walmart over Target or vice versa, Target over Walmart, there is a unique market value that drives you there. Right? And in the case of Christianity, in the case of the church, the unique value, what makes the church the church, is this message of the gospel. It's our message. And, it's, and if it's that important, right, if it's so important that, right, we not change it or dilute it or lose it, right, because if we do, then we lose the church, then it's very crucial that we understand what that message is. Uh, it's what that's, and that's what's at stake in this story. That's what's at stake in this passage is the purity of the gospel message itself. That, that issue comes up right there in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas have come back to Antioch. They've been there some time when some brothers, some men, it says, come down from Judea, and they're teaching something different. They're teaching the church in Antioch that unless... You, you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then when the council convenes in Jerusalem, we see in verse 5 that it's, the same, it's restated again. Uh, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now let's talk a minute about what's going on here. Right? Let's give a little bit of background. Jesus was a Jewish man. His disciples were Jewish men. Uh, and so Christianity was born and grew up within Judaism. Right? They saw themselves as the fulfillment, Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Right? So this was a very Jewish movement to begin with. And yet those same scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, said that, this, that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, was not just for Jews, but for the whole world. He wasn't just for Jews, he was for Gentiles, non-Jews as well. So Jesus' mission is meant to encompass all, not just Jews. Now, <clears throat> we've already seen a little bit of that as we've seen Gentiles come in and um, theoretically... We're all good. But now that the Gentiles are coming in in droves, that the word about Jesus has gotten out beyond the Jewish boundaries into the pagan Roman world, and Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus, now we have an issue. Because you have some Jewish believers who are like, now, hold on. You know, for me as a Jew, to come into, to come into the people of God... Had to be circumcised, right? To be circumcised is a part of being, being in the covenant community, right? To belong to the people of God, you need to be circumcised. And you need to follow the law of Moses. So 
if these Gentiles are coming in, these Gentiles who have no Jewish background, they know nothing about Moses, but they're coming to Jesus, well, they need to be circumcised too, right? I mean, they're being brought into the people. They need to be circumcised. That's the issue. Basically, these people are saying these Gentiles, in order to be saved, must become Jewish. Now, can you see why this is a big deal? And can you see why this counsel is so critically important? Because Paul sees it. In verse 2, we're told that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. That when these men started teaching this to the church, Paul and Barnabas pushed back. They fought back and said, no, that's not right. It puts the message of Christianity in jeopardy. Because here, in essence, is what it says. You can view it as an equation, okay? What they were teaching was, you need faith in Jesus, that's good, plus obedience to the law. Circumcision, the law of Moses, etc. So faith plus circumcision equals salvation. Right? Faith is good, but you need more. Faith in Jesus is not enough. And what Paul and Barnabas said, and what they took to the council was, no, 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 it's faith alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So that's, that's the issue, right? That's the issue that's presented itself. You have these two equations, these two very different messages, right? So this is not about religious practice. This is not about external, circumstantial, unimportant things. This is about the core message of Christianity, you can't have them both. It's either this or this. What will it be? Right? The Judaizers were saying, that's, what, that's one name given to this group. The Judaizers were saying that in order to be accepted by God, a person must be circumcised. That's the issue. And they go to Jerusalem to resolve it. And, and how is it that it gets resolved? Well, after much debate, we're told Peter speaks up. And you can... See his speech there in verse 7. Peter reminds them of his experience, uh, which we looked at several weeks ago, where he went to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Rather, he, he was sent by God to a Gentile to proclaim the good news to a Gentile and to the Gentiles in his home. And he watched as the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles. Look at what Peter says in verse 8. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit, uh, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And so Peter is saying, Jew or Gentile, we both receive the same Holy Spirit. There's not a difference, right? Gentiles don't receive less Holy Spirit because they're Gentiles and uncircumcised. They receive the we receive the same Spirit. They receive the Spirit that we receive. It's identical. He goes on, verse nine. And he made, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This statement is crucially important. Because circumcision is all about distinction. Right? The Jews were commanded to, Abraham was commanded to circumcise his offspring as a way of separating them from the nations around them. It was all about distinction. And it was a symbolic ritual of cleansing. It was an outward sign 
meant to point to an inward need, an inward reality. And that inward reality was the cleansing of the heart. That circumcision was an outward act that pointed to the inward need for cleansing, right? The Bible tells us in places like Leviticus 26 and Jeremiah 9 that the heart is what needs circumcising. The heart is what needs cleansing. So you can have the outward sign, but not have the inward reality. This is true of baptism today, is it not? How often is the sign, the outward sign of cleansing, baptism given, but the inward reality is not there? Same thing. Peter says this, right? So, so, what, this, so well, what this tells us is, right, that the real issue, the real problem is my heart. It is my heart that needs cleansing. And, and how does that happen? He says, God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts. God is the one who cleans the heart. Friend, your greatest problem Your greatest issue is not something outside of you. It's not your body. It's not your friendships. It's not your circumstances. It's not your parents. Your greatest need and your greatest problem is that you have a filthy heart that needs to be cleansed. And the one who does the cleansing is God himself. That's what Peter saw happen in Cornelius' living room. And how does God do that? Look at what he says. Cleanse their hearts by faith. Not by circumcision. Not by obedience to the law of Moses. But by faith. Receiving and resting upon Christ alone. Then look at what else Peter says. He goes on. Verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He looks at his fellow Jewish brothers and he says, guys, we haven't even kept the law. We don't even get accepted by God this way. We can't bear this yoke. Our fathers couldn't bear this yoke. So why are you putting it on them? He says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Just as they will. Gentiles and Jews are saved in exactly the same way. Right? There's not not two ways of salvation. That's what what Peter is saying. He's not saying, he's he's saying, look guys, we can't be saved by law keeping either. It's not as if we've done the circumcision law keeping thing right. We haven't done that right. We need to be saved by grace. They need to be saved by grace. Jew and Gentile alike are saved, are accepted by God. By grace, through faith, period. Full stop. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds freeing, sounds wonderful. And yet, as James Montgomery Boyce says, um, there is the, the hardest of all ideas for human beings to grasp is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. We always want to add something to it. And Zach did a good job earlier of pointing out how we do that, right? Circumcision in the law of Moses really isn't an issue for us. That's not something, like, that's not, a, that's not a struggle we feel. But have you ever said when something was going wrong in your life, 
and you, and you thought, well, I can't pray about this. I haven't talked to God in a long time. Right? That's, that's earning. You're, you're, you're in essence saying, God doesn't want to hear from me because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. That's adding something to grace. If you've ever thought, man, if I had just had my quiet time this morning, my day would not have ended up a total wreck. God must be punishing me. That's Faith Plus, right? And unlike Disney Plus, Faith Plus is not good, right? Um, That's adding something to grace. When we imagine that we must do something, right? We must add something to be accepted by God, then we are committing the same error. And we always, like, we always want to add a but. People are saved by grace alone, but you do need to pray. People are saved by grace alone, but you do need to go to church. People are, right, but there's not a but. As if to imply that we are saved by grace alone and our church going. Now, look, yes, there are things that are good and right, things that we are supposed to do. I remember, uh, I remember a dear brother telling me one time that if, we, if you keep preaching this way, if you keep preaching this kind of gospel with this kind of grace, then people won't do what they're supposed to do. You know, Paul faced that same objection in his letter to the Romans when they said, now listen, man, you're talking a lot about grace. Are you saying that we can go on sinning so that grace will abound? And Paul, of course, answers that no. But, as Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from Great Britain, early 1900s, said, if, if, our, if our gospel doesn't get criticized in that way, then we're not preaching it forcefully enough. Grace alone is just that radical, that it ought to make people say, now hold on a minute, at which point we can say, no, it really is that good. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing that I do. No praying, no giving, no Bible reading. Grace alone, period. That's it. Are there things we're supposed to do as Christians? Yes. But none of those things will make me acceptable before a holy God. In fact, grace is what enables us to walk in obedience. Not just fear, not punishment, not guilt. Those can be good motivators. But I think the best motivator of all is the free and undeserved kindness of God that saves sinners. That's what frees us to walk in obedience. And so the message of Christianity, the pure gospel, is that we are saved by grace alone. Whether we're Jewish, whether we're Gentile, we're accepted by God on the same grounds, and that's the work of Jesus. That's, that's the purity of the gospel, and that's what this council defends. Now, there's a second item uh, that the council also has to address. or something else at stake here, and it's the unity of the church. An ethnic rift is forming uh, between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, that 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 rift is already there. Uh, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a damaged bridge. Maybe you can't see the crack in the cement until you drive, you know, an uh, 18-wheeler across it. Then the damage to the bridge becomes very apparent. So that rift is already there, but this issue of circumcision exposes it. This is a problem. There's a rift forming between Jews and Gentiles. How in the world are they going to bridge it? 
friends, we live in the day of the rift. Right? What's sad is that the divisiveness of the world outside the church has come into the church. Where we can where we can't even have different views on how to wear masks, who's to wear masks, how to vote, who's to vote, all of that stuff, right? And the reason those rifts form is because we make something other than the gospel the main thing. We make something other than grace alone the main thing. And you'll notice that what this Jerusalem council does, what James does in particular, is he bridges the gap, he closes the rift, by pointing back to the grace of God. Look at what James says. James follows uh, after Paul and Barnabas give their report. James stands up. Uh, he's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he, he confirms what, they, what they've been saying by quoting from the Old Testament. If you look in verse 14, he says this. Simeon, that's, that's Peter's Hebrew name. That's the Hebrew version of his name. And what he's doing is he's... He's talking, right? He's, he's gaining a hearing from the Jewish side of the court. He's basically looking at them and saying, guys, we're not forsaking the faith of our fathers. This is the faith of our fathers. This is the way we're supposed to go. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That phrase, a people for his name, that's Old Testament language. And it talked about the Jews. James takes that phrase and he says, now it applies to Gentiles too. Gentiles are a part of the same people as the Jews. God has taken from the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he quotes from the book of Amos. And the court agrees that uh, with his judgment in verse 19, my judgment is that we should, know, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Right? We're not going to require circumcision. And then they write them this letter. They write them this letter. To tell them uh, what's, what's transpired, they send it with some representatives. But notice what they say in the letter. Verse 23, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles. Now that's astonishing. I don't know if you and I can appreciate just how far apart ethnically and culturally Jews and Gentiles would have been. But here you have a group of Jewish men looking at a group of Gentiles with whom they have nothing in common culturally or ethnically except the Lord Jesus. And you know what they call them? Brothers. They in essence say, we're a part of the same family. We've been brought in together by grace. That's the unity of the church. The unity of the church is not rooted in our lifestyles. It's not rooted in our politics. It's not, it's not rooted in anything but in the grace of Jesus alone. It's rooted in the, in the person of Jesus himself. And this council affirms that. Which is why they go on to say, and this is, this is kind of uh, puzzling initially when you think about it. They, they make a list of four things that they want the Gentiles to abstain from, that they're asking them to abstain from. Right? Uh, we see it twice. The first time it's, Verse 20, we should write to them to, to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. What, 
Why do they require these four things? What are, what are they saying by, by, by including this in their letter? Well, there's some disagreement, um, but they seem to be saying uh, basically that those four things listed would have been regular Gentile practices in worship. Um, strangled animals, uh, sexual immorality, uh, idol meat, all of those things would have been part of regular Gentile worship. So they would have been a part of regular Gentile practice. And, what, and the reason they include those four things is because Jewish people would have found those particularly repugnant. And what the council is saying is now that we belong to one body and you guys are gathering regularly, Gentiles, you need to be on the lookout for these. Don't offend the conscience of your Jewish brother. In other words, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. They're saying, walk in love towards the people who aren't like you. The way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 8 is he uses this idea of a weaker brother and a stronger brother, right? The stronger brother is somebody who knows that an idol is nothing. So if you're going to swing by the market on your way home and grab some meat that had been offered and sacrificed to Zeus, you could do it because Zeus doesn't exist, right? He's not real, so you can cook that meat. You can bring it home for Thanksgiving, right? Actually, I think it would have already been cooked. But you can bring it home, uh, and you can throw it on the plate, right? Unless, of course, your Aunt Maud is there, and Maud, she struggles a little bit with the whole Zeus thing, right? She's only recently come out of worshiping Zeus, and so for her, that idolatry is still fresh. It's still a struggle, and she just can't do it. And so what this council and what Paul later say is like, okay, well, then we won't eat the meat, right? We don't have to, I am free to do these things, but I will put my liberty aside to love you. That's, I believe, what the council is saying here. That because we're united in Christ, we can bear with one another in love. That means I may have to give up some things I want to do, and you may have to give up some things you want to do so that we can walk together in Jesus. Right? So two things that were addressed here, the unity of the church and the purity of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May God give us the grace to believe these things and to walk in them with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving us, not by our works, but by yours, by the work of your son, Jesus. And so conscience, we don't have to linger because of conscience. We don't have to dream of somehow one day being fit to come before you, to be accepted by you. You've done that for us already. Cleanse our hearts by faith. And help us to love one another because of the grace you've shown us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.